0: You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour mm-hmm. on 2SER 107.3, where we are back with our final episode discussing the body in the library oh. by Agatha Christie. Chapters 14 to 18, which is all the way to the end. So it is full spoiler territory. And Herds, mm, yeah, flex. I just want to say, I
1: feel a modicum of sympathy. <laughs> for basil blake oh for basil blake i was gonna say i feel sympathy for several characters in this book but yeah. i do basil's basil's a funny one isn't he it really is <laughs> essentially
0: this is a very quiet stretch of chapters we sit down we have a few discussions about the nature of the crime and then we just kind of get into the the breakdown scene and the explanation happens it's
1: really quaint yeah well like there is a a, a certain amount of tension that's kind of built before mm. the yeah, you know, the explanation scene because we have to actually catch the killer in in the act. So dangerous. But it's but it's very uh it's very low key and the way that we try to kind of build that tension is through I mean, we've talked about how there's all of these different police characters that were sort of well characterized in the beginning but have gotten more sloppily characterized as the story is going on yeah yeah um but we we're in this situation where I think it's uh it's that Henry has been told everything by Miss Marple and we're trying to like slip notes to the policemen so they can be mm-hmm. around when the killer is caught so we're kind of supposed to be in the shoes of the police yeah. while following Miss Marple it's kind of a funny thing and and yeah so there's this tension built as the police don't really know what <laughs> road Miss Marple is leading them down but I think by this point in the novel you I mean you certainly have a have a good idea of what's going on. I, so. I was a little confused by like how far down the garden
0: path Miss Marple allows them to be led when yeah. there is still the risk of another murder being carried out like very presently. Yeah. I don't think it ever builds a sense of tension, but it does get very close to like
1: comedic tension. Where it's like, are you kidding me? We're still going. I, I think it is a genuine attempt to like build tension, but it, it it's it's like, what are the chances that we're going to fail and not catch the killer before they yeah. before they kill uh, Mister Jefferson? Like, what are the chances mm. of that actually happening? Zero to none. With their you know? heart attack poison, the heart attack poison, which you know is foreshadowed. We to a degree, we we do talk about <laughs> how you know. It would take something. It would take a very slight shock to kill Mister Jefferson. It'd be so easy to bump him off. But we'll, you know, we'll get into all the all the rules and things. I'm sure at some
0: point. <laughs> I did. I did think it was interesting though that, like, you know, the the foreshadowing of the way that the medicine that was used for all three murders. Yes, is kind of hand waved by suggesting that it would have been
1: easy to kill them in other ways as well. It's just a convenient way of moving the story along I guess to to get away from like oh but what if they struggled or whatever yeah
0: it's it's almost like it's less of a murder method and more of a shorthand for a murder
1: was done all of the other stuff is what's important well yeah, I think that's the sort of the key takeaway isn't it that like it doesn't really matter like it, it matters how the murderers tried to get away with the crime it doesn't really matter how they were actually killed. Except except for that one time when when uh, Mister Gaskell says I would have throttled her. Was, Aside from that, that line, was terrible. <laughs> which is there's a lot of ridiculous lines like that though, and I I do enjoy this novel, uh, particularly in the way that Miss Marvel kind of solves the murderer through like this is something I've I've been looking into that it was kind of praised at the time that it came out because of the the clues are all very like feminine. Yes. Um. The biggest clue is the the way that the the victim's nails were cut or bitten, as the case may be, like the dress, the way that you dispose of a hearthrug, things like that that are tr- traditionally looked after by the lady of the house. Mm-hmm. Those are the clues that Miss Marple alights upon. Yeah. And there's kind of a comedic slant to that where Miss Marple and the policeman have arrived at Basil Blake's house, right? Miss Marple to say, your husband's going to be wrongfully arrested. And then, of course- the husband comes home and then the police show up like in, in this conga line of coincidences. But anyway, uh, the policeman who's there thinks to himself, my goodness, that Miss Marple, she's so clever. She's arrived at the same conclusion we had that this is the killer. How smart of her. Wow. Her reputation really is deserved. But like he hasn't even seen the half of it, the half of it even. You might you might say. Anyway.
0: I also think that it's, it's really fun the way that everyone gets, gets so excited about Miss Marple solving this case because- it very much plays I think into the way that I understand she's characterized more broadly where she's like not as defined of a character she like shifts and changes kind of based on what the story needs so this like level of enthusiasm that the police have really kind of caters to that any woman persona
1: that she has depending on you know, what the story requires. I mean, it's definitely that underdog aspect, right? Like yeah. whenever somebody hears, ah, oh, yes, there's this nice old lady who solves murder mysteries and she's brilliant and and you should work with her, Mr. Policeman. Everyone goes, that's ridiculous. But I'd kind of yeah. like to see it happen, you know? Like nobody is <laughs> quite so against Miss Marple solving the case that they like get in her way, mm. I suppose. Because, I mean, that is a trope, right? The, the bombing policeman who- their incompetency or their prejudice or like their pride or whatever gets in the way of the, of the actual detective solving the case. And it's not so much here as it is that the other characters kind of want her to succeed. It's just a matter of, uh, I I guess her her own skill and ability, which I think is, is quite pure in a sense. Yeah. I I think there's also a sense of like a bit of an inversion
0: that happens because we were complaining, or at least I was complaining about how the cops (laughs) get a little less Uh, distinct as we get further on into the book. At the end of the book, it feels like it plays more of a role than being lazy, because at the end, you know, we see Miss Marple's competence when she was just brought in because Miss Bantry was like, oh, well, you're good with corpses, aren't you, dear? (laughs) Yeah. And so because of the way that she becomes more defined and the police less, we really get to see her flesh out what makes her so good as a detective where
1: she's like very natural at it. Well, she, she takes over everything, right? Like, yeah. And and this is why she's so kind of undersold in the, in the earlier parts of the story. Mm -hmm. It's so that by the end of it, she sweeps the entire situation away. She's orchestrating the police from behind the scenes to find the killer that they don't know who it is until they've literally got, got them in their hands. Right. Yeah. Uh, It's very very
0: difficult to say like, which would be the, best entry point for Marple Christie stories because uh, I haven't read all of them I was gonna but say. this one feels like it would be very good because of that because she comes in so like unassuming and then we have that role inversion by the end
1: yeah I, I still need to read her debut novel or perhaps some of the short stories but um this is a good a good entry point because she is a bit more I would imagine a bit more fleshed out than her initial appearance yeah once you've built upon the uh, conception of a character, you can only do more interesting things with them, I suppose. Well, I, I suppose until you get bored of them. I mean, that. well, that's, <laughs> that's the case, isn't it? And I mean, the, the second novel was written like 10 years after the first one. So clearly there's some interest there, you know? Either that or just a lot of reader
0: pressure. You or can never pressure. tell with these- with these authors back when they actually used to respond to us humble listeners, <laughs> when they used to respond Not like to our the, letters, the lofty heights that they're at these Look, days.
1: I'm just saying, if only if only there was an author who would respond to my letters, <laughs> asking them why they don't include me in their murder mysteries. For some reason, <laughs> I've never gotten a response. I don't know for why. for some reason. For some reason, <laughs> yeah, what do you what do you normally like send? Herds? You like attach pictures of anything in particular? Yeah, you know, just a picture of me with my my beautiful face smiling and right, yeah. with a bloody knife in my hand. I mean, it's a strawberry jam. It's not real blood, obviously, Yeah, but being like, isn't this the face of a murderer? Don't you think that you could create a beautiful tapestry of a story around Mm, freshly, freshly jammed toast in the background on the kitchen bench? I do have jammed toast. I prefer Vegemite, I think, for breakfast at least, but I do like... A good strawberry jam toast. I, I imagine that Miss Marple and I, if we could have tea and and jam on toast, I think we'd have a great time.
0: Alrighty. Well, I suppose, Herds, we should uh, we should we should tidy up this part of the discussion and head on over and get into the mystery. Mm. Uh, because I, I have I have a few things that I I must confess I I did not see coming despite doing an overall
1: I think a pretty decent job I, I think you did a pretty good job too but we'll, we'll get into points and maybe you should tell me these things that you're like disappointed about I'm so curious will do all right you're
0: listening to death of the reader we are discussing the body in the library by Agatha Christie all the way through to the end full spoilers we'll be back with more of that classic in just a second you're on to SCR 107.3 You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex here with you, and I'm joined on the line by Margaret Hickey, author of the newly released Stonetown and the newly Ned Kelly Award-nominated Cutter's End. Marg, it's so good to finally have you on the show. Welcome to Death of the Reader.
2: Oh, thank you, Flex. I'm so excited to be on your podcast because I'm such a fan. Thanks for having me.
0: It was pretty fortuitous for you having Cutter's End receive that nomination within a week of the release of its sequel, Stonetown. Has that sunk all the way in yet?
2: I couldn't believe it. So I was at the airport. I'm from a small country town in Victoria and I was at Albury Airport waiting for my plane and I was scrolling through Twitter and someone wrote to me um, congratulations on the nomination and I just put question mark, question mark, and then I looked up on Twitter, on Instagram or something, and I saw Best um, Debut Crime Novel. And, you know, it had Brian Brown, sweet Jimmy It had, you know, it had the others and then Carter said, I, I nearly died. I shut it and I shouted out in line at the airport. Oh my God. <laughs> and um, and then I had to contain myself um, for the duration of the flight. Yes.
0: Yeah, so didn't want airport security getting a little too concerned.
2: Exactly. Then I had to contain myself and then, Oh, look, it was just, it's such an honor. And I, I'm, I'm so pleased. And, and to be alongside the other shortlist, you know, I feel really privileged. So I'm, it, 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 nothing like this has ever happened to me. So two things in once, the release of Stonetown and this nomination, it's just been wonderful.
0: Yeah. I guess one thing about Mark kind of coming into his own and growing as a character is that a strong thread between both of the novels is the fear that women and particularly young women face. And Mark is really interesting to me as a catalyst for that, because he's both been present for so much fear in his whole life, but at the same time is only really kind of starting to grapple with it in this part of his career that we're seeing now. Why do you think unspoken fear is such a powerful divide between even friends?
2: Well, I- I don't know so much about friends, but I I think between um, men and women, and also between generations, and sometimes, and it's like, so you're younger than me. I'm fifty, and men of my my friends, my very good friends who are male, my husbands, my brothers, and that sort of thing, they are only just beginning to realize or don't realize how frightened women can be. Um, in so many different circumstances. And that and when you do explain it to them, they're kind of shocked. Yeah, so I, I just think that it's perhaps something that we haven't spoken about much. I think the younger generations are much better at it, but that 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 fear and certainly with the whole me too and, and now it's much better. But for the men of my generation, when I was young in you know, 1989 and the early 90s, we didn't talk about those sorts of things. So now that those men of that age are getting older like me, are in their early 50s, it's come as a slow surprise to them, which is which is odd but uh, I
0: really do think it has. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting. You know, you mentioned the Me Too movement in there and one of the moments that you did bring up the movement was Mark and Rachel ha- ask a young girl what the slogan printed on the back of her T-shirt was and then end up, oh, yeah. end up you know, Googling what it was and finding out that it was a, a term adapted from a YA novel. I won't go into a heap of detail there, but the thing that kind of stuck out to me was that for yourself as a writer, who I know is a really big advocate of reading both for writers and readers, that was the closest we got in the Stone Town to reading a book. So many present pop culture kind of fiction references with films and TV, but books kind of are left to these important plot moments, but very quietly in the background.
2: How interesting! Do you know what? I'm going to be totally honest with you. I've never actually considered that. I've I've only realized that now. I guess for my main character, Mark, I didn't imagine him as a big reader or as also oh, I think he's someone who has loved reading but has never really thought consciously about his own reading. Certainly pop culture is everywhere with music and film and um, and those sort of subculture movements like the goths, that sort of stuff. So all of that's really visible but the reading is um a more private thing i think
0: it was interesting to me because just last week on the show we were having a discussion with uh, moira redmond from clothes and books about how agatha christie is kind of the same with the way that she writes fashion yes. where agatha christie rarely ever writes anything about people's clothes but the few instances she does it's like the most important thing in the book
2: i'm thinking about the times that i have explicitly put books in and book titles in and of course those book titles even if they're sort of mentioned randomly are incredibly important to what's happening at the moment or what's about to happen. So, yes, thank you for that. You've, uh, You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. You've made me realise that. I, I
0: suppose the other thing with, uh, with r- like, reading and books in your stories is the, your background comes from having a PhD in creative writing, which was studying landscapes in Australian literature. And unsurprisingly, you do a wonderful job of painting an image of this post-Gold Rush town where, as the press line describes it, land is the new gold. What is it about the way that the value of rural areas have changed that make it so ripe for putting these power struggles in those towns?
2: Oh, I mean, they're just, it's a gift. It's a joy to be able to write about landscapes as an Australian author. And I'm really fortunate because I have lived in small rural towns almost all of my life and landscape is incredibly important to me and has always been very interesting to me. There's the really obvious things for a writer about what a rural landscape does You can hide a body really easily and and you can put people in really extreme situations like droughts or floods. You can put people in places where literally no one can hear them scream. So so there's there's really practical components. And then there's the other components which are really important to me and which has, has been my research throughout my PhD and most of when I was writing in academia stuff as well, is that landscape for white Australians it's so interesting because we love the landscape and we we love being in rural areas so much. There's this there's this notion of um, do we belong here in land that has been um, has never been seeded. So it's I see these characters and these people in these places every day. I'm kind of living a lot of these these things that I talk about in the book. So. It's it, it's really terrific for me. I, I feel very fortunate.
0: Yeah. One thing that you mentioned in there that I thought was really interesting is that the idea of, particularly you said you can't hear people scream, The this idea mm. of like deep space and the mm-hmm. barking owl mm. and the kind of the old school country tale that barking owls have this sound like a woman screaming, blood-curdling in the night?
2: When I'd first moved from one country town to another and I'd moved to the Warby Ranges, um, so this is like 2017, Is this is northeast Victoria, we woke up and there was it was about June or July and there was this most horrific scream and my husband and I both woke up, this sort of sobbing, wailing scream. And it is the most terrifying thing I've ever heard of. My husband went outside. He was calling out, worried that there was a woman there being attacked. We went to call the police and then we said, no, we this can't be right. Like... <laughs> We're in the middle of nowhere. This this can't be right. But we didn't sleep the rest of the night. And you know,
0: I, I understandable.
2: <laughs> and, and then we would hear it, not very often because they're endangered. It never got any easier. But you know, I've been walking in the bush near my house and I've looked around and there's a man with binoculars looking and it, it, my first instance is um he's spying on me or he's going to murder me and then He's looking for the for birds, you know, Ninnats nice Convents, maybe the barking owl. That
0: was that was one thing that I thought was so fascinating about this motif through the stories, because you bring in the bird watching club, which obviously harkens yeah. back to that particular moment you're talking of there. And I loved it in relation to that kind of deep space, no one can hear you scream metaphor, where these bird watchers are out there at least in relation to the crime, hunting for something that might not even exist. Like it may not have been a barking owl that screamed in the crime. Yes. And it's such like a horror novel thing to do, this group of people oh. there looking for the the non-existent.
2: You're so right. And that's and you're saying that is everything that I hope people would think too because I think that too. It is disconcerting to see someone standing sto- so still in the middle of the bush, you know, in Chilton Nupar, National Park where no one ever is. And this this feeling of who's watching who and what are you actually doing here? But of course they're looking for birds. Um, yeah. So it's, it was a good, it was a good thing to put it in the book. Yes. Well,
0: fantastic. Margaret, it's so good to have finally had you on death of the reader. And I've had such a fun time reading through both Cutters End and Stonetown. I really hope that people enjoy them as much as I have. Thank you,
2: Flex Your support to new Australian writers And and um, writers who have been around for a long time Is really valued So thank you so much It's
0: my pleasure You're listening to Death of the Reader We are discussing Agatha Christie's The Body in the Library Which we'll be back with more in just a second If you want to get a copy of Stonetown Or Cutter's End We'll have links up on the podcast And thank you to Penguin here in Australia For providing us with, with some copies You're on to SCR 107.3 Stick around You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for Agatha Christie's The Body in the Library on your Murder Mystery World Tour. We're discussing all the way to the end. I have been in the hot seat, and Herds, I finally did it. <laughs> I have tried and tried and tried so many times to pose a correct theory in the first week of the various books we've covered this year, and I've gotten close on several occasions. But only this book have I finally managed, I think, I hope, to get <laughs> ahead of it all in the first week.
1: I mean, look, let's let's talk about let's talk about the the points breakdown here and, and how we're gonna can I, can I do this. Because I'll be honest, I, I'm torn. This is definitely one of those those stories because you, you did such a magnificent job of of solving oh, thank you. the core mystery and the and the connected web. Um, you even nailed down the murderers, like, and their relationship. You didn't pick out that they were married, I think, which was no, which was no,
0: I didn't. Uh, there were a lot of details that I, 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 slipped through that we can get into in a bit, but mm. I, I want to hear this verdict first.
1: Yeah, because I look, we talked last week about, you know, what is the the biggest clue mm. that uh, Miss Marple was going to use to identify the the corpse and to kind of prove everything. And the answer was, of course, the, the fingernails, because yes. the difference between the two bodies is that uh, Ruby Keane, you know, the victim that we're looking for, would have, yes. if she had cut her nails short, would have done a very neat job of it. But it is pointed out a couple of times in the novel that they are, they look bitten. There, there is a secondary clue about how her teeth are said to stick out when they actually stuck in, but I don't, I don't care about that one. That, <laughs> the, the answer I'm, I was looking for was she bit her nails. Um, because the body was in fact, that of a schoolgirl who, who did bite her nails. I'm kind of torn because I think you did such an excellent job of picking out that individual clue, but you did, you did stumble at the finish line. You did not say that she bit her nails. No, I, I like, it was, it was definitely a piece
0: that clued me into like why they were different bodies and actually lining up the details of the crime, but it's just the specifics of it being like, oh, a schoolgirl would obviously bite her nails is just, like, so
1: reductive. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, to, like, to be very clear, it is not just that a schoolgirl would bite her nails. It's that a nightclub dancer probably wouldn't. Yes. Because it is directly said in the text that she that the, the corpse had bitten her nails. But it's like, um, she,
0: it's established that she's a young and new nightclub dancer you know, she's not that much older and it's also like she's she's potentially just been told huge life-changing information yeah, and maybe you know. she was nervous. Maybe. Look, so I, like, look, I, I I don't know. I didn't <laughs> feel like... I, I can understand it being the clue that Christy used, but I also don't think there was any way that I would have
1: That's fine. gotten that. Look, here's the thing. You're not Miss Marple. You're not a, a lady detective. You're not... Look, That's true. Lacking in certain areas, I'm just saying. But I think that all that is said and done with the fact that you solved it in the first week and I was incredibly impressed with the the detail you managed to extract and you did pick the nails out specifically I, I am going to give you your full points. I'm going to Yay. give you full points for this, this novel. I think that to hold back any points would be cruel and unusual. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I, I was I was a little worried that
0: you were going to pin me on the fact that I said that Basil Blake was meant to be framed by them putting the
1: body in the Bantry's library no, rather fine. than that Basil moved it himself. I, I Look, I think that that's a fine detail to kind of miss because the real explanation is... Uh, he was drunk, so he did a super thing, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is like fine. It's an explanation, but it doesn't, it doesn't like completely work. I know. It it, it doesn't feel entirely satisfying, I feel. I I do like it
0: the way that it works though, in terms of like, you know, that scene we were discussing in part one of him being embarrassed. Yeah. The idea that he's also like too proud to go to the police when he's like, oh crap, there's a body in my house. There's
1: a dead body in my house. I won't report it. I'll take it somewhere else.
0: Oh, those banshees are stuck up. I did really love how like, I mentioned in the first part of this episode, how down to the wire, it was that they actually let the murder attempt go, and it's straight up like the needle's nearly in his arm yeah. when the policeman grabs it out of her hands,
1: and it's just like it's so close. <laughs> it's to build tension when you're like, but if the needle went in, like, what kind of murder mystery novel would this be? Like, <laughs> yeah,
0: to just let him die. It's so weird seeing a scene that feels so much like it was written to tell for television. Before television was set, like a, a huge entertainment medium, it's
1: crazy. Well, I don't know about you. Can I say I was viewing the silhouettes in my mind? Like the way I'm imagining this scene shot is, it's like a, like we're looking at uh, from from sideways from the side of the bed. We're looking uh-huh, forwards. Uh-huh. and we see like the silhouette of Jefferson in the bed lying yeah. down. We kind of see the outline of his nose. It's like in profile, and then we see the window open behind the bed. <laughs> the curtains fluttering. Thank you, and the candle blows out or whatever. <laughs> And then the figure creeps from like the end of the bed, the, the the you know, the end where the toes are, all the way up to where the head is. And we're like, we can't tell who they are because it's a murder. We gotta hold the, the mystery off until the second when they bring up the the needle up into the air Ching. and then an arm, an arm comes out from like behind the curtains or out of a wardrobe. I was
0: like thinking exactly the same way as I was reading that scene. That's so fascinating to me that we kind of pictured it so distinctly the same way. It gets back to exactly what I was saying, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, it, it ties into these, these tropes of like the the catching of the villain at the, at the last moment. I
0: think the other thing that was fun about this mystery in terms of it's like fair play nature was that the pieces that you had to solve were so obviously presented to you in this novel I feel like I really had to get to understand the characters a bit more to appreciate the puzzle, which was like a, a, a pretty a pretty engaging way to integrate persona into a mystery yeah. novel.
1: Well, I mean, th- this novel has sort of a, a interesting trajectory where we get to the halfway point in the novel, and the, and the cops are saying, well, clearly. After all of this digging we've done, after all of this police work we've we've been observing, yeah, uh, it's a question of alibi. I think that mm-hmm. the um, the big the big big clue that I don't know if we've even like talked about properly so far uh, is that the, the schoolgirl goes missing during the day, and everyone assumes oh she's been killed because she saw something, yeah. But if she's been killed because she saw the murder of Ruby Keen, she would have been disappeared during the night when we think that it happened. Yes. You, know, you switch around the times, then you can you can bypass the alibi completely and look at the murder in a completely different light.
0: I think to to sum up, I have really enjoyed this book, but it's it definitely is a bit of a coffee table mystery, you know? Sure. It didn't blow my mind. I enjoyed it a lot. And I, I will look back fondly on it, but it's also kind of like my, I guess the question I'm asking myself right now is where does this go in our ranking at the end of the year? Because it's so oh easy to recommend because of how comfortable and accessible and fun it is, but it's also not the most exciting novel. Yeah, It's not the one that changed the way I think about things.
1: Now it definitely didn't like blow my mind or change my perspective or anything. Yeah. But I will say I liked Miss Marple as a character a lot more than I thought I would. I thought she'd be a bit boring or like not that exciting to follow. Yeah, like w- when you describe Miss Marple,
0: you're like, ah, uh, yes, the lady detective. What a trope! But the- her actual
1: execution is so good. Yeah, I think she's she's really entertaining to follow. And as I've as I've said every week now, like those little moments in the narration where her eyes flicker or she turns in her chair very slightly. And you go, oh, this is the clue. This is the crack the case moment. This is it. She's done it. <laughs> like the, the fact that it's, such a small it's ripple. It's so user friendly. It's great. Like such a small ripple in in her manner can indicate that she has stumbled upon the linchpin of the case. Somerset Absolutely. House. Right. It's beautiful. So- I guess you need to tell me what we're doing now folks. What, what book have you got in the cooker for next time on
0: next week on the show herds? We've got a, got a little bit of a twist, no points on the line for this one. I'll have another book to prepare for you shortly thereafter. Uh, but I thought it'd be good fun to take a look at some of the adaptations oh. of uh, The Body in the Library, which we were discussing doing last week on the show.
1: Yeah, no, I am excited for that, actually. I- I've been having a look through. There's quite a few adaptations. There's like a Korean adaptation. There's a French adaptation. It looks great. Look, yeah, let's let's get into this. Let's get into I- that nonsense. I don't think I want to prescribe any particular ones, though. I mean, I'm interested in Miss Ma Nemesis, but I, I-, I do want to like- Give these a look over and figure out which are which are quality before we dive into them, as it were. For sure, but don't don't feel worried
0: about watching exactly the adaptations that we have. Bring an adaptation of your own next week on the show. Let us know about it, and uh, we would love to sit and uh, discuss just the general way that this story has uh, been revered by the broader media.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's like doing something a bit weird on the show. So this should should be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: You're listening to Death of the Reader. We'll be back with that next week here on your Murder Mystery World Tour. You're listening to 2SER 107.3.